heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the voice of a nation. I'm Wallace Garneau, guest hosting for Malcolm. And today I want to talk to you about different visions of America's future. And by visions, I mean uh, there are different political groups in the country, different factions within our two political parties, and there are some competing ideas about what the future of America should look like. Uh, Republicans obviously do not agree with Democrats, but Republicans also largely don't agree with each other. And the same thing is true amongst Democrat voters. I think there are a lot of Democrats out there that uh, don't agree with the party leadership. And I think there are many things within the Democrat party leadership uh, where, where people don't agree with each other. So I want to talk about some of those things, some of the different visions that different groups have for our country. And and I'll use some actual names as I do that. And uh, We'll, we'll talk about that. We'll look at what those futures could look like. And uh, I think it'll be pretty clear what the vision of America that I want is. I'm actually going to start with that. And when I say my vision of America, I think that it is the predominant conservative vision of America. I think this is what most Republicans want when they talk about what America should look like. I think that America should take our founding ideals, our founding virtues, or our founding principles, uh, which is, of course, liberty and freedom for all, let people live their lives as they wish, uh, an unobtrusive government that has a small range of specific powers and that leaves the people free to live their lives as they wish, that leaves us free to interact with one another as we wish. If I want to go to one store to buy something rather than going to another store, I should have freedom to choose how I want to live my life, and that covers economic decision-making that, that we may make. If I prefer Meyer over Kroger, I should have the right to go to the grocery store of my choosing, what have you. So that's, I think, the, the generic conservative view of what America should look like. Uh, it deals with a strict or an originalist interpretation of the Constitution. Uh, we like being clear with our language, so I think Republicans, by and large, like to use precise language utilizing definitions that uh, are the, the predominant definition, the, the dictionary definition, if you will, at the time a word is used. And uh, so I, I think that what Republicans don't want, and we get unfairly labeled by Democrats, what we don't want is we don't want a balkanized country or a balkanized country of different groups all vying for power. You know, I've never hear Republicans, for example, saying that they want the black vote or they want the Latino vote. You'll sometimes talk about we need to do better amongst those groups, but you never hear Republicans talking about specific policies geared towards specific groups. You'll hear Republicans talking about inner city projects, you know, revitalizing economic interests in inner cities and things of that nature, but always around socioeconomic groups. You know, poor people, for example, never around racial groups or or anything of that nature, or gender groups, anything of that nature. It's uh, Republicans tend to have a view of everybody essentially being, at least in terms of how they should be treated by the government, the same. 
whether you're white, whether you're black, whether you're Latino, whatever you are, whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, whether you're non-binary, whatever you are, I think conservatives tend to look at the world as a group of individuals. Uh, some people say a minority of one. We are all individuals. We are all different. And we, we all have our unique desires, our unique beliefs, our unique way of looking at the world and of wanting to live within it. And we should all be free to do that as long as we're not interfering with the rights of others to do the same. Now, what Democrats will do is they'll say, and again, I'm not talking about all Democrats. I'm talking about the leadership. Uh, I'm talking about the talking heads on television. What they like to do is they like to say that Republicans, the Republican Party is the party of racism. And they'll say that because they'll say, well, what are they doing for black people? And the answer is, well, we don't want to do anything for black people specifically. We want to do things that help all people. We don't want to structure our society based upon racial lines. We don't want there to be racial lines. We want economic opportunities for everyone. We want everyone to, uh, to receive a quality education. We want everyone to have every opportunity to live as meaningful and as productive of a life as humanly possible. Somebody asked me what I think the most conservative view for what the world should look like. I would say that our founding forefathers were open to the idea of the entire world becoming a part of the United States of America, which is why they structured our Constitution the way they did with a central government that does just a handful of very specific things. And then state governments that are free to run themselves largely how they see fit. You know, look at the Constitution. You really have two parts. You have the Constitution without the Bill of Rights, which essentially says what the power, what the scope, what the federal government is for, how it operates, uh, and what it can do. And ideally, the federal government would only do those specific things, those specific, would only have the specific powers that are enumerated to it in the Constitution of the United States. And then you have the Bill of Rights. And the Bill of Rights, in my estimation, uh, I know it took an amendment to enforce this. There was disagreement about this as soon as the country was founded. But in my estimation, the Bill of Rights was really designed not so much as a restriction on the federal government. It does restrict the federal government. Don't, don't get me wrong there. Uh, but the, the rest of the Constitution defines what the federal government can do and leaves everything, up to the, everything else to the states or the people. And the Bill of Rights, in my estimation, defines what even the states cannot do. So you have a constant, the main constitution defining the powers and the scope of the federal government, not the states. And then you have the Bill of Rights defining what states and the federal government cannot do. And that's my way of looking at it. And, you know, we should have 50 states that are free to run themselves in 50 different ways. You know, if California wants to have free health care, and, and wants to have people poop on the sidewalks and wants to give free heroin to every junkie. And, and you know, if they want to be a, an absolute communist utopian nightmare, a dystopian nightmare, I don't live in California. I will never live in California. 
knock yourself out. There is nothing in the Bill of Rights that prevents California from living like that, from having that kind of an economy, from having that kind of a government. Uh, there's some things communists have done that obviously violate the Bill of Rights, but California can do whatever it wants as a state as long as it does not violate the constitutional rights of the people in California. Michigan, we could have a very, very different path. And Michigan's kind of a, between the left and the right, it, it flips around a lot. We have conservative governors, we have liberal governors, uh, the legislature tends to be more Republican, but the, the leadership of the state is very, very split. I see people talking about Michigan as being a Democrat state all the time, and I always get mad when I hear that, because no, we're not a Democrat state. Michigan is very much a border state when it comes to politics, when it comes to conservative and liberal values. We flip both ways. We, we change our minds as a state. Uh, but so that's my vision. And under that vision, there would be absolutely no reason why Greece, for example, could not join the United States. It would still be Greece. It would still have its own culture. It would still have its own autonomy. It would not have its own currency if it joined the United States, but it would still have it would still have its own flavor. It would still have the ability to, to the Greek people would still be able to live their lives as the Greek people want to live their lives. Now, the idea of Greece becoming a member of the United States seems a little bit far-fetched, but Sicily, after World War II, came very, very close to joining the United States. Very close. Uh, for There were people that thought that it was going to become a state in the United States. It didn't happen, but it could have. And I think one of the reasons why countries don't consider joining the United States of America is because the United States of America has become more than just a conglomeration of states that give a central power a limited, specific set of powers, but then are essentially autonomous. You know, they used to say the sovereign state of Michigan or the sovereign state of Virginia. And we, we people would say that. They would, they would refer to the state as being sovereign because the federal government didn't do a lot. Who your governor was is supposed to be far more important than who the president is. And I still think that's a beautiful thing. I think every state should have maximum independence uh, to run its affairs however it sees fit with a federal government that stays within the limitations as defined by the Constitution of the United States. All of the powers, they are in Article 1, Section 8. All of them. Everything the government should do at the federal level is in there. Everything else the Constitution does breaks the government up into pieces. You have the executive branch, which is supposed to execute the laws. Not write them, just execute them. You have the legislative branch, which is supposed to write the laws. And note that we've been around for almost 250 years now. Most of the laws we need are probably already written. So when I hear people complaining that the federal government isn't doing enough, that our legislature isn't doing enough, how much do you want them to do? What percentage of the laws that are passed by the, by the Congress of the United States make you more free rather than less? To me... A very active legislature is a legislature that is actively infringing upon our personal liberties. I don't want an active federal government. 
I want a legislature that argues a lot and then doesn't get much done. I want steady laws. I want stable laws. I want laws that are not constantly in flux. Businesses can get used to pretty much any regulatory agenda as long as that regulatory agenda isn't changing all the time. You know, I, I did an analysis years ago. People talk about, well, the country does better under Democrats. It is better under Republicans. I said, you know, that's something I should be able to figure out. I should be able to look based upon what party is in office, how much growth we have, unemployment rates. I should be able to roughly gauge how healthy the economy is under Democrats uh, versus Republicans. And I found, it surprised me, I found that Democrats, on average, do a little bit better than Republicans. Yeah, I know, you're shocked also. It's the last thing anybody would have expected me to say. Well, what I also found, and this is where it's a little bit uh, less shocking, not by a statistically significant amount. It actually makes statistically no difference whether the president is a Democrat or a Republican. And part of that is the policies that are put in place don't always reflect four-year buckets. So things that Reagan did, for example, continued to affect the country after he was out of office. The things that Barack Obama did continue to affect the country after he's out of office. So things that are done, it's not like somebody is no longer in office and, oh, gee, now the Social Security is gone or, or LBJ is gone and so now there's, there's no more Medicare. Now, that's not how it works. And so from that perspective, you would not expect a high degree of correlation between economic benefit or economic distress uh, based upon who the president is. I did find, interestingly, that the economy does much better when one House of Congress is controlled by one party and the other House of Congress is controlled by the other party. So when we have gridlock, we tend to have economic growth. When we don't have gridlock, lots of changes. That affects businesses. Even if they're positive changes over time, the fact that you're making changes will have uh, a negative impact on the economy, as at least initially, as businesses get accustomed to those changes, figure out exactly what those changes mean, and figure out how they can make a profit with those changes. Now, some changes, a small drop, it immediately takes off. Deregulation seems to have that effect. Other changes, uh, when, you, when you heavily regulate something, as the regulatory agencies figure out how they're going to enforce those regulations, the, the negative effect can grow over time. So who the president is doesn't really matter. Uh, who's in charge of Congress doesn't have a tremendous effect, except that when Congress is split, when we have gridlock, that's when the economy really takes off. Uh, I also found that who the head of the Federal Reserve is has a tremendous amount of impact on how well the economy does. So Federal Reserve policy, the Federal Reserve is supposed to be boring. They're supposed to create a stable monetary base. That's it. If the Federal Reserve really did its job, they would be boring. They would have very little effect on the economy. Unfortunately, we have an activist Federal Reserve. They get involved in trying to fight unemployment. They get involved in, in all these different things. Uh, Federal Reserve today even buys housing debt. Uh, originally, they were supposed to buy only U.S. treasuries, only bonds. Well, now they buy all kinds. Of, they're directly affecting specific segments of our economy. So uh, anyway, that's going off a little bit of a tangent there, but it doesn't really make a difference who the president is, at least in the short term, in terms of the, the effect on the economy. What does make a huge impact 
is what kind of an economy different groups are trying to implement. And I talked about about my view, which I think is a very generic conservative view on what the Constitution or what the, what the economy, what the country should look like. There are other conservative views that disagree with that. Uh, there are Christian conservatives, for example. Christian conservatives, uh, they tend to be anti-gay. They tend to be obviously pro-life, so they're anti-abortion. They tend to be very pro-gun. Uh, they want Christian values. Uh, they tend to be less open to immigration, which is, which is kind of strange when you think about it, because most of the people who immigrate to the United States are coming from South America. They tend to be Catholic, so they're, they're Christian. Uh, but they tend to be against immigration. Uh, they tend to be against cultural change. Uh, and they tend to be uh, really in favor of laws that reflect the morality of the Bible. Uh, Christian conservatives used to have a lot of power within the party. As a matter of fact, for a long time, the Republican Party was kind of controlled by three different groups, none of whom were strong enough to run the party by themselves, but they didn't have a lot of overlap. Uh, and as a consequence, they could kind of share power, and then each part would have control over the part that was important to them. You had the Christian conservatives who had moral views. They wanted laws that reflected the morality of Christianity, but they didn't really care so much about foreign policy, and they weren't all that focused on the economy. Then you had neocons, who were very active in foreign policy. This is the whole freedom on the march thing. We want to project American dominance. We want to project American values. We want to project free markets and democracy all over the world. Those are the neocons. And there are neocons, by the way, in the Democrat Party, too. The neocon movement is not purely a Republican movement. And then the third group are the uh, libertarians, or, or I guess people who focus more on economics, generally being conservative, uh, conservative economics, which would be more, more libertarian in view in terms of free markets and, and what have you. Not necessarily libertarian in terms of of uh, moral freedoms, but in terms of economic freedoms. And so these three groups, none of them, the economic free people, or freedom people, the neocons, and the conservative Christians, Christian conservatives, none of them were strong enough to run the party by themselves, but they were strong enough to choke out other groups uh, by, by voting together as a block. And what's happening is true libertarianism is becoming a stronger part of the Republican Party. And... Uh, the Christian conservative movement is starting to fall out of power. Not to say they don't have any influence, they still do. Uh, they probably always will. I know I'm a Christian, so so I'm guided by my, my Christian belief. And, and I don't know it affects me a lot politically, but you know, what you believe kind of affects everything to one degree or another. So, yeah. But I think the, in terms of wanting, for example, homosexuality to be illegal or something, I, I think those days are over. That's, that's not even a dominant view of the Republican Party. Democrats, uh, I think, are, are more of a mixture of specifically three groups. One would be the socialist wing of the Democratic Party. And when I say socialist, I want to be very clear in my terms. I mean central planning, and I mean government ownership and operation of the means of production. Now, when I say government ownership of the means of production, really I'm talking about a, the elimination of the profit incentive. 
Uh, I think the dictionary focuses too much with that term on ownership. Ownership can be broken up into a number of components, one of which is control. I think that's a very important component of ownership. If you don't control something, how much do you really own it? But I think... Uh, I think really profit incentive is is, is the, the the hallmark there, and as we get into other terms, you'll see why. Uh, another group would be fascists, and fascists are very similar to socialists. This is a word that gets misused all the time, and it gets misused all the time, of course, because the Nazis were were fascists. Well, so is Mussolini, so is Pinochet, who was in power incidentally into the eighties. Uh, so were large swaths of Central and South America, other countries in Europe. Fascism was very, very popular in the 30s and, uh, and 40s. And uh, there were fascists in America. I'm going to make an argument in a little bit that FDR was a fascist. Not just make an argument. I'm going to prove to you a little bit later that FDR was a fascist. So when I talk about fascism, I'm talking about central planning, but with a profit incentive maintained. So the government controls the means of production, but it allows profit to exist as an incentive device, as a, as, as a means of incentivizing people and companies to produce efficiently. Uh, the other group that I would look at would be kind of, I guess, my dad's Democrats, if you will. And there are still some of those out there. Joe Manchin, very clearly, is neither a socialist nor a fascist. Joe Manchin is really a free market person who just thinks that we need more regulation than the typical Republican does. And that used to be the typical Democrat view. You know, we used to be split not on whether or not we should have a free market economy, but just on how regulated a free market economy needs to be. Democrats uh, historically had more of a negative view toward business ownership and wanted more and more regulations to prevent the ownership of businesses from screwing over not only their employees, but also the consumer. And so, lots of regulations. Uh, Republicans, and again, I'm speaking in generalities, I apologize for that, but I, I'm not trying to say they're monolithic. There's a lot of different groups, so I'm not, I'm not pointing at anybody and saying, oh, you're a Democrat, or oh, you're a Republican. No, I'm just saying, generally speaking, Republicans tend to view free markets as something that involves less government intervention, less regulation. Not to say most Republicans don't believe we should have any regulations at all. I think most Republicans believe that there should be a lot of regulations over the, not just the economy, but regulations in general, just nowhere near as many as the typical Democrat thinks that we should have. So... That used to be the norm. Democrats wanted a free market that was more regulated, and Republicans wanted a free market that was less regulated. And to the degree there was a center, I guess that would have been people that thought that the government was uh, about the right size in terms of regulation. Now, another topic I want to talk about is virtue signaling, because we see this a lot in politics. We see it a lot in the media. And I tend to pick on Democrats when I talk about virtue signaling, but Really, it's done by both parties. I, I, I want to be fair here. You know, both parties are guilty of this to one degree or another. Uh, Republicans tend to focus on it more on moral issues. This would be the Christian conservatives in particular will really focus on, you know, you're a good Christian. I think we know what it, what, what it is with Republicans. What Democrats like to do is they like to, again, I mean, the leadership, media, what they like to do is they like to kind of define a set of political beliefs 
and they will say, if you believe the right things, if you believe what we tell you to believe about the world, about the country, about the Republicans, then you have virtue. And if you stray from the, the, the view we want you to have, then you lack virtue. So in other words, they try to, to get a person to link their sense of self-worth and self-value and their sense of self-virtue with having the correct political views. And they're very, very effective at this. Of course, they go after children at a very young age. This is why CRT is taught to five-year-olds. They go at people at a very, very young age, trying to convince them, believe these things, or you're evil, you're a racist, you hate women, uh, you want dogs and cats to get together, you want to topple mountains, stop the rotation of the earth, and everybody is going to die. Now, this, this is kind of... I'm over-speaking a bit. Well, not so much when you look at global warming. But anyway, they have this alarmist view about what the world would look like if they're not in charge. And they've been selling this for a long time. Uh, they've been teaching it in our schools. Uh, we've been doing it now for at least two generations. Uh, we've been teaching Americans in schools, American children, to effectively hate their country and to effectively hate each other. They've been very effective at this in our schools, uh, in, in the media and, and everything else. I'll give you two really good examples of virtue signaling on the left. One is Joe Biden saying, if you don't know you're voting for me, you ain't black. Well, that was wrong on so many levels when he said that. It's not funny. But the thought process that was going through his mind behind him saying it, essentially what he's saying is, if you disagree with me politically, then you're a racist. And you're a very, very evil, vile, anti-black form of racist, or sort of racist. And, and so... What he was saying is, if you're a black person, you don't really have the right to look at the issues for yourselves and decide. He was asserting the right to tell an entire race of people what they have to believe about the world around them. And he's not even black. So you know, the, the notion of a white person telling all of black America, either you vote for me or I deny that you are the race you are. That's, it's absurd. It, so it's, the, the optics of it were very, very bad. But uh, Thomas Sowell, actually, the thought process behind it, Thomas Sowell described very, very succinctly when he said that Democrats love black people, but they don't look at us as equal so much as as pets. And I say us there because Thomas Sowell, obviously a black man, that was his word. But uh, that's a very succinct way of, of the way the Democrats, at least how they treat not just African Americans, but any minority. They expect you to vote as a monolithic block for them because they claim everybody except them is a racist. Virtue signaling, ladies and gentlemen. If you don't agree with our political views, you're a racist. That is so clear-cut virtue signaling. What they're saying is either you vote for who we tell you to, either you view the world how we tell you to, or you're evil. Clear-cut. Elizabeth Warren or Hitler. No, that's kind of what they do. Joe Biden or Hitler, if AOC would say Hitler, literally. I mean, virtue signaling. Very, very clear case of virtue signaling. Another example. This was on The View just the other day. I forget which host it was, but there was a black female conservative on The View, and uh, one of the hosts of The View said to her, I don't understand how a black person can be Republican. And then they kind of had this off-the-rails conversation about whether or not a black person could be a Republican. She also said, and Latino people. So she was saying, I don't understand how black people or Latino people can be Republicans. 
And by extension, she, I think she really would, would have met all minorities. I, I think uh, what she's trying to say is that the Republican Party is the party of white supremacy and the party of white people and the party of white values and the party of racism and all of these different things, as if racism only exists on the political right, as if every racist in the history of the country was a Republican. It, it's absolutely absurd, but she believes it. And she believes it because she was taught growing up. If you don't believe in the political views that I have assigned for you, you are evil. She believes that. Raised her entire life being told that either I believe what these people over here on the left have told me to believe, or I'm vile, I'm racist, I'm evil, I hate women, I hate all these different things. And so the left has been very, the Democratic Party and the, the, the media, they have been very, very good at segmenting the population into those who agree with Democrats and those who are evil. And that's how they want the world, to, that's how they want it to be looked at, which is why Joe Biden could, could bake an entire election down into, if you don't know you're voting for me, you ain't black. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, uh, we'll take a brief moment for our sponsors. We've got a lot to talk about on the other side of the break, so stay tuned. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. You wouldn't go a day without brushing your teeth or washing your hands. What about washing your nose? I mean, your nose does filter the air you breathe air loaded with bacteria, viruses, and irritants. Make nasal hygiene part of your routine with Clear. No messy bottles to fill, no drowning sensation. Clear is a natural drug-free saline with the added benefit of xylitol, which blocks bacterial and viral adhesion. Available in stores and online at clear.com. That is X-L-E-A-R.com. Surely, if you can't find it here, you can't find it anywhere. We are the pulse and voice of everyday American thought. So you can listen in on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Along with a healthy immune system, clean air is vital for optimal health. According to the EPA, we spend 90% of our time indoors, where germs are most concentrated. It's essential to clean indoor air. Genesis is the only technology that quickly, safely, and effectively kills pathogens both in the air and on surfaces in seconds, reducing the viral load in any environment. The powerful, well-built Genesis Fogger produces a dry, ultra-fine mist using HOCL, which occurs naturally in our own immune systems. We'll be living with airborne diseases in the future. New viruses and antibiotic-resistant superbugs are no problem for Genesis. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Visit genesisfogger.com. America Out Loud listeners receive a 15% discount with promo code OUTLOUD at genesisfogger.com slash OUTLOUD. Is a record player the best way to listen to music? Of course not. So why are you still taking vitamins that haven't been upgraded since the 1930s? Even if your vitamins aren't hard to swallow, 
it's time to upgrade to Healthy Cells pill-free, patent-pending microgel supplements that work at the cellular level to boost immune health, sleep better, focus deeper, and stay younger longer. They taste great, convenient on the go, and they're more natural too, without chemical binders, fillers, and coatings. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of any product. That's HealthyCell.com, H-E-A-L-T-H-Y-C-E-L-L, -L, and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back. I do have one more thing I want to say on virtue signaling before we move on to the second segment of the show. I want to point out that once somebody is successfully virtue signaled, which is to say, once they view their self-sense of virtue, their self-sense of value, once they associate that with having the correct political beliefs, you own them. They will never be able to change their beliefs. They'll have to follow what you tell them to follow forever because if they change their beliefs, if they change sides, if you will, they lack virtue. They become all of the terrible things that they've been taught to call the people on the other side. So Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, without having a massive red pill moment, she can't become a conservative because to her, that would mean being Hitler, literally. And with that, now we'll move on to the second segment. Let's talk about the other two sections of the Democrat Party. Uh, we already talked about those who are the moderates, the Joe Manchins and the DNC, who are really more conservative at this point than liberal. They're uh, believers in free markets. They differ with, with, I guess, with me in the sense that they think there should be more regulation than I do. But they do want free markets. And, uh, you know, that's one side of the, of the Democrat Party. Those Democrats that used to be called blue dog Democrats, they're still out there. Fiscal conservative, but they have more liberal values. Uh, in many cases, maybe they're more liberal on moral issues. And as a consequence, maybe they think moral issues are more important than economic issues. And as a consequence, uh, they do side with, with Democrats uh, on those issues. And that's logical. If you think that you have more of a left-leaning view of moral issues, more of a right-leaning view on economic issues, and you think that moral issues are more important than economic issues, there's no reason why, you know, it's logical for you to to vote as a Democrat if you can find Democrats that share those moral views and that you don't find repugnant in other ways, such as not supporting free markets. That's a decision that everybody who, who has feelings like that on moral issues has to take. But the other two aspects of the Democrat Party, they're really split between those who lean more toward Marxism and those who lean more toward fascism. And when I say fascism, I'm not talking about Hitler. I'm talking more of a Mussolini style or a Pinochet style. I'm sorry, not Pinochet. A, uh, oh, who's the guy in Spain? Franco, Fernando Franco style of, of, uh, of uh, fascism. Pinochet was not a fascist. Pinochet was something else entirely. But anyway, people like Elizabeth Warren or Hillary Clinton those are people that would be definitely a Franco or a Mussolini-style fascist. And I say they're fascists because, well, Elizabeth Warren's case, she has her Accountable Capitalism Act. Now, what is the Accountable, the Accountable Capitalism Act? Well, friends, it's a retread of something Franklin Delano Roosevelt put out called the National Recovery Act. 
The National Recovery Act, in turn, was a direct copy of Mussolini's Italy. The FDR, during the Depression, sent a group of envoys to Italy to investigate what Mussolini was doing in Italy and to see what it would take to implement Mussolini's Italy in the United States. They came back and, based on their recommendations, FDR put together the National Recovery Act. And a funny story there, I had a, actually had a, a sticker that was an NRA sticker, and I thought that it was uh, National Rifle Association, so I kind of prominently displayed it, and then somebody came over and, and said, you know, that's an interesting NRA sticker you had. And I said, yeah, it's unique, isn't it? He said, yeah, it's for the National Recovery Act. And I thought about it and promptly found a razor blade and peeled it off and threw it away. <laughs> so anyway, National Recovery Act, direct copy of Mussolini's Italy, and uh, Elizabeth Warren's uh, Accountable Capitalism Act is a direct retread of the National Recovery Act. It is fascist through and through. And when I say fascist, I mean it is a direct copy of Mussolini's Italy. So if you want to live in Mussolini's Italy, vote for Elizabeth Warren. Hillary Clinton, I say she's a fascist because she gave a speech to Goldman Sachs, the content of which was on Leon Panetta's email. His server on the server was, on his email server was password, or his password, rather, on the email server was the word password. And you know, I think everybody under the sun who wanted to hacked it. Uh, but anyway, the content of the speech became public. And what she told the partners of Goldman Sachs, so the first thing she said was, uh, don't worry about what I say to the public. I've got two completely separate platforms. One of them is for public consumption. This is what I tell people in the hopes that they will elect me. The other one is what I'm actually going to do as president of the United States. And she was very clear with Goldman Sachs. She said those two platforms have absolutely nothing to do with one another. What I am telling the American people I am going to do is based upon what I think will get me elected. It has nothing to do with what I will actually do if I am elected. Those two platforms are separate. The platform I tell the people is a lie. What I'm going to tell you is what I would actually do. She didn't say it's a lie. I'm saying it's a lie. Unless we have a strange definition of the word lie, though. When you come out and say, I've got two platforms, one I'm telling the people, and one I'm going to implement, and there are no similarities, I would call that a liar. So, yeah, Hillary Clinton is a fascist and a liar. What she told Goldman Sachs she was going to do was to put together a group kind of like a boardroom, if you will, consisting of the big banks, large corporations, and government bureaucrats, with her, of course, at the head. And this group, then, would centrally plan the economy and control the government. This, this group would run the country. Ladies and gentlemen, that's, that's fascism. Uh, Herman Goring might as well be one of the people on that board. That is straight-up fascism. That is as fascist as Elizabeth Warren's Accountable Capitalism Act. Elizabeth Warren's view is that we need to have industry czars in government reporting to the president and that these czars with presidential authority then would have as much control over corporations as they feel they need to the degree of being able to go to individual corporations and tell them what to do. That's Elizabeth Warren's view, that they should be able to, to do this. And 
if you have a small hand on that, then maybe you still have some personal freedom in terms of how those businesses operate and what they do. But if you have a heavy hand, and I think her image is, or her vision is, with some industries, it will be a light hand, and with other industries, it will be a heavy hand. You know, that's what she wants. And what we're seeing throughout Western Europe, what we're seeing in Canada, what we're seeing in Australia, what we're seeing in the Western world, really essentially everywhere today, are movements like this, where the government is taking far more control over our everyday lives, not just locking us up because of COVID, but in some cases, you, know, you have to have papers, you have to prove that you're vaccinated to go out in public. Crazy what some countries are doing. And the, the, the granular control they want to take over the economy is straight up fascism. So that's, I think that is, when people talk about what is the new world order, and by new world order, the Western powers, if you will, what are they moving toward? And I think the answer there is kind of a, a global system of fascism. And then you also have on the Democrat side, the Elizabeth, or I'm sorry, not the Elizabeth Warren, the uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Bernie Sanders wing, the squad and, and the squad's uh, old, crazy-eyed, white-haired, you know, Bernie Sanders. And what these people want, and they're a little bit wishy-washy about what it is that they want, but what they seem to want is more of a Marxist vision of central planning. You know, they talk about the evils of profit. They talk about how we should have a society that is not driven by profit, how we have to move beyond profit and, and focus on, on other things. And uh, what they'll say is, and I'm going to get into something very important here, what they will say is that they want democratic socialism. But what is democratic socialism? How do you define democratic socialism? Small side note of history. Adolf Hitler's first job after World War I was working as a political propagandist for the Democratic Socialist Government of Bavaria. He was, after World War I, for a period of time, a Democratic Socialist. One of the things that he was told to do by the Democratic Socialist Government of Bavaria was to spy on a small political party known as the Nazi Party. And it was while he was spying on the Nazi Party that he discovered fascism and began to fall out of love, not with socialism, but with democracy. Hitler never stopped liking socialism. It was democracy that Hitler fell out of favor with, that Hitler stopped having uh, viewing as something positive. Friedrich Hayek did a wonderful takedown on democratic socialism in his book, The Road to Serfdom. What he shows is that democratic socialism is impossible and that any attempt to create democratic socialism will either lead to communism under like Stalin or it will lead to fascism, you know, like Hitler. And uh, brilliant takedown. What he does is he talks, uh, I don't remember his exact example, My, the example I often use is milk. He'll talk, for example, about milk, and he'll say, you can use milk in a lot of different ways. You can drink it as milk, you can turn it into cream, you can turn it into ice cream, you can turn it into butter, you can turn it into cheese. And he said, imagine a democratic socialist system where you try to centrally plan what to do with something like milk. Do you want to have more milk to drink and less ice cream? Do you want to have more butter and less cheese? Do you want to have more cheese and less ice cream? 
Do you want to have more milk and less cream? You know, how do you want to balance the milk cows that we have in order to anticipate the demand of the people? What do you want us to do with the milk? And what he found is that people will, not individually necessarily, but collectively, they will very, very consistently vote for more of everything. Now, you only have so many milk cows, so you can't necessarily make more milk and more butter and more cream and more ice cream and more cheese and more of everything else that could possibly be made with milk. But that is what the public will vote for. And of course, somebody like Bernie Sanders would say, but they're not going to do the central planning. They're going to elect the people who will do the central planning. Well, yeah, but the people that they're going to elect to do the central planning are going to be running for office. What promises are they going to make? They're going to tell the American people the same thing that Bernie does. Everything's free, and you'll have more of it, and I'm going to put a chicken in every pot, and you're not going to pay for college, and you're not going to pay for this, and you're not going to pay for that, and you'll get 3,000 weeks of vacation a year, and your health care is free, and you're going to drive a Ferrari, and you know, you'll tell people what they want to hear, because that's, that's what Bernie does. He sounds like a crazy old man, and he does it, but that's effectively what he does. So that's how you get elected in a democratic socialist system, is by telling the public what they want to hear. It's the same way you get elected, really, in any system. If you have a highly educated population that knows what they're talking about, that is interested and involved on the matters of their day, that understands politics, perhaps they've read Thomas Sowell's Basic Economics, then maybe you have the opportunity for a functional democracy, but it's not going to be a democracy that runs as a socialist system. Because if socialists truly understood economics, they would not be socialists. Socialism has never worked. It will never work. Now, Bernie Sanders would say, of course it does. Look at the Scandinavian countries. Interesting story, the Scandinavian countries. They became very, very wealthy, as did we, through free market libertarianism. They had laissez-faire free markets, and then all of a sudden in the 1970s, they decided maybe we need to do something about income inequality. They began going socialist. Sweden at one point was so far socialist that they actually passed a law saying that businesses have to take a percentage of their profit every year. If you have employees, by law you had to do this. You have to take a percentage of your profit every year and you have to invest it in an employee wealth fund owned by your employees, an employee wealth fund. What did the employee wealth fund do? It bought stock in the company. So under this system, which didn't last long, the businesses rebelled, Sweden eventually had to nix it, but had it continued, Sweden was going to force business owners in Sweden not only to transfer ownership of their businesses to their employees, but to pay to do that. They were going to take their profitability and use that to give their businesses to their employees. Pretty obvious, obvious I think, why businesses were not for it. It would have destroyed new business creation, too. I mean, it was a horrendous idea. But having the employees own the business, you know, that's, that's, that's Marxism. That's, that's a tenet of Marxism. And that was, that was one of the things that they actually at one point had in the books. What the Scandinavian countries really did is they began experimenting with socialism. And they began moving full bore towards socialism. 
And then their economies began to collapse, and they kind of had a, had a if, if, if you'll excuse the French, they kind of had an oh shit moment and began coming back toward free markets. Now, it's a much easier to add socialist things than it is to take socialist things away. So the movement back to free markets has not been as quick as the movement toward socialism was. They still have, for example, very vast welfare systems, very generous welfare systems. They still have, uh, in some cases, free health care. However, note that Sweden is talking about privatizing their health care. Why? Higher quality, better affordability. Two things that are very difficult to do when the government controls it. So Sweden's actually talking about privatizing health care. And guess what Sweden's already privatized? K-12 through education. Every school in Sweden today is effectively a charter. Everyone. They've effectively gotten rid of public schooling. Does it work? Yes, it works beautifully. It would work beautifully here if we had the moral courage to do it. The problem we have is the teachers' unions don't want that. See, teachers' unions have this thing where they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, we're all for the students. No, you're not. Your students don't pay dues. You're for the teachers. Now, in a perfect world, the teachers would want what the students want. In fact, in a perfect world, we built our education system. You start with the students. How many teachers do I need to support the students? You hire the teachers. How many administrators do I need to support the teachers? You hire the administrators. How many superintendents do I need to manage the administrators? You hire the superintendents. Done. And most of the money is being spent where the rubber meets the road on the teachers, with the students. Unfortunately, the way we do it, the way government likes to do things, really government does pretty much everything this way, you start with superintendents and you have them hire all the administrators that they want. Then the administrators go down and hire the teachers. And then the teachers are given students in many cases, more students than one teacher should have. And then what you find is that in terms of how the money is spent, spent the same way. Superintendent, here's your budget. Okay, administrators, here's your budget. Okay, schools, here's your budget. By the time you get to where the students and the teachers are, the money's gone. So what you have are these lavish administration buildings and schools that have, le have, have leaky ceilings. Now, go around the country. Look at the administration buildings. I, I, I dare you to try to find a public school administration building that leaks. In some cases, they spend more money on the architecture for the administration building, because that's where the superintendents are, than they spend on the schools. I mean, it's absurd. But, you know, top-down systems, government systems, that's, that's how they tend to operate. But democratic socialism, it's, 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 it's a non-issue. It's, it's, it's not really something that exists. If you try to get a democratic socialist to define their terms... What they will tell you is, first, you don't know what it is, and then they'll tell you that it is all of these magic pie-in-the-sky things that seem to be working somewhere. You know, Argentina, or Venezuela, rather. Venezuela was a democratic socialist country until it collapsed, and then it became something else, and so did democratic socialism. It became something else. Scandinavia is a democratic socialist. Those countries, it's not one country, it's a group of them. They are democratic socialist nations. Until you go somewhere like Denmark and ask the president or the prime minister of Denmark, is this a democratic socialist country? And he'll say, no, we're a free market country. Yes, we still have a generous welfare state. Yes, we still have some of the things that we started to implement when we wanted to be a socialist state. But no, we're not a socialist state. That, that doesn't work. We're moving away from that. 
So no, they're, the Scandinavian countries are not an example of democratic socialism working. They're an example of a movement towards socialism falling apart and the countries having enough wherewithal to then move away from it. And there seems to be a correlation. Why did Venezuela collapse and the Scandinavian countries did not? There seems to be a correlation between how heterogeneous a population's culture is and I'm culture, we're not talking race here, we're talking culture, how heterogeneous a country's culture is with how easy it is once they start moving towards socialism then move away from it. There's also a correlation between how heterogeneous a country's population is, its culture is, with how long it takes for generous welfare systems to destroy the cultural norms that lead to, for example, hard work. Welfare in Scandinavian countries has been okay largely because the people that are in Scandinavia, it's a cold place. They have historically had to work their tailbones off to be able to survive. That is not an easy part of the world to survive. The winters are brutal. So that's been their culture. It's been a culture of hard work, of determination. And because of that, when you throw up a generous welfare system, the majority of the people continue to work anyway because that's what they do. But then their children, seeing that generous welfare system, might be a little less willing to work so hard as their parents were. And their children, a little less willing to work hard than their parents were. And so on and so on and so on. And then you get people migrating in from other countries who don't have those moral norms, or those cultural norms, rather. And, and maybe they're more apt to take the welfare than the people that are living there. So the culture starts to break down. The norms that made it wealthy start to break down. It, Venezuela, very, very cultural, very diverse culturally. And as a very diverse culture, it did not have the ability to, to sustain a large welfare state for anywhere near as long, nor did it have the ability to, once it began to collapse, start to go back in the other direction. Venezuela didn't collapse because the dirty capitalists stopped feeding it. And the idea that they did, this is how absurd that is. If socialism worked so well, why would the socialists need capitalists to feed them? Capitalists don't claim to need socialists, but socialists, whenever it collapses, always blame the capitalists. If your system works, you don't need capitalists. So do something that works. That's, that's my advice to socialist countries. Stop being socialist countries. But that's where we are, where we have these competing views of what the future of our country should look like. Those of us on the right, and more and more commonly, those of us in the middle, want free markets. We may disagree with how much regulation is necessary. We may disagree with how much the people should pay in taxes or how progressive the tax policy should be. But as a general rule, we want taxes to be relatively low. We want people to be relatively free. We want people to own their own productive capacities and to be able to do with their productive capacities as they will, as they wish. We don't want government control over every decision in our lives. That would be, I'm going to guess, 70% of America. If you ask them on the issues, don't ask them who they're voting for. Go issue by issue and ask them what they believe. And I think on economics, that is where 70%, I'm going to throw that number out there. Don't go checking on it because it's a number I'm making up out of licking my finger and sticking it in the air, if you will. But that's my gut tells me that it's probably about that much. The other group of Americans 
are split between just wanting free things and not really having a clear understanding of what that means or how to make it work. Hello, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I'm talking to you. And then you have a mixture of fascism and communism. And understand, China is a kind of a crossbreed of Marxism and fascism. They're no longer truly a communist state, but they're not really entirely a fascist state either. They're this interesting combination of the two, where most businesses are wholly owned subsidiaries of the Chinese government, but they're operating as if they were private companies, even though really they're not. So maybe that's where we're headed, is kind of a Chinese-style hybrid of communism and fascism. I, that's certainly what the left is pushing us toward, is some kind of either a combination of communism and fascism or one of the two, something that's going to very closely resemble either communism or fascism. That's where we are. These visions of America are guiding us. They're guiding our politics, our politicians. They're guiding our economic policies. They're guiding our environmental policies because if you can control a country's access to cheap and reliable energy, you control the country. Well, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to control our access to cheap and affordable energy. They're trying to eliminate our access to cheap and affordable energy. They do that, my friends. They're also eliminating your checkbook because if you're paying $1,000, $1,500 to heat your house, that doesn't leave a lot of money for other things other than the bare necessities. So we have to decide as a people, what do we want America to look for? What are we willing to fight for? What is our vision for the future of America? And ladies and gentlemen, I know what my vision of the future of America is. I think you probably agree with it. Clearly, I said what it was earlier in the show. If that's your vision of America, then you know what to do. Get loud, get active, get involved on America Out Loud. Thank you. Thank you.